So this morning, my name is Reed Wilking, if you don't know who I am. I'm our youth director here, and I have the privilege of delving into God's Word. So we're going to be turning to Psalm 58. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me. So we're going to read this aloud. I'll read it aloud. Um, you can follow along if you do have a physical Bible. If not, it'll be projected behind me up here on the screen. So you can follow along that way. So let's read from God's Word. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. All right, that's the word of God. So we better pray. We got to work cut out for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is given to us in your Bible. We thank you for your son and what he's accomplished for us on the cross. And God, this morning we pray that you would reveal to us the goodness of your justice that is laid out in David's psalm, Psalm 58. God, we thank you that we were able to gather here this morning and to study your word. We pray all of this in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, I have a confession to make. So I really love the movie Braveheart. And a lot of people kind of levy some accusations or some criticisms against the movie. And I'm not going to say they aren't fair, right? Some people say, oh, well, it's super violent, right? Over the top. It's Mel Gibson, right? So you got all sorts of blood going everywhere, and like, it's just too much. I'm like, okay, I can see that, right? I can see that being a fair criticism. The second criticism I'll hear is, man, this is so historically inaccurate. And in fact, journalists, including writers from The Times and The Guardian and Reader's Digest, have all ranked Braveheart as one of the most historically inaccurate films ever made in the history of mankind. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. But despite its flaws, man, it is a great movie. It's so good. And it came out in 1995. So some of you have seen the film before. You know the story. You know how it ends. But since I love this film so much, just indulge me for a second. Pretend like you've never seen it before, right? You're sitting down. It's 1995. And you're watching Braveheart for the very first time. So in the film, you get these shots of these beautiful mountains and all these trees. And then there's this awesome you know, opening title credit, just Braveheart on it. Got the Scottish music going on, right? And then it opens on this little boy named William Wallace. So William Wallace lives in Scotland in the late 13th century. And the first scene that we see is him witnessing a mass murder. And it's carried out by this evil king whose name is King Edward Longshanks. 
and he's the English king. So he conquered Scotland, and Scotland's now under this rule of King Longshanks. Now, just from the name, you can tell he's kind of a bad guy. So anyways, William Wallace is a boy. He witnesses this murder, and it's of all of these fellow Scottish people, right? And he's maybe 8, 9, 10 in this scene. It's not entirely clear, but he's young. And he witnesses all these dead bodies, and they're hanging from the ceiling. And he's traumatized. And he knows that it's evil. He knows it's wrong. And he knows that King Longshanks is the one who carried it out, right? King Longshanks is the one who actually gave the order to execute his fellow Scottish men. Well, years later, uh, Longshanks, the same king, actually passes this law, right? And it's called Eus Prima Noctis, and it means right of the first night. And it's this, like, abhorrent, abhorrent law that means that local English rulers can actually take Scottish brides on their wedding night and steal their virginity, right? So imagine you're William Wallace at this point, right? You have seen this murder and another scene after that. His father and his brother are actually killed, so you lose your immediate family to this King Longshanks. And then he passes this absolutely evil law and allows these local rulers to do something that you just know is wrong. And keep in mind, these local English rulers who are given this right, prima noctis, they're actually meant to keep justice, right? So King Longshanks, as much as he would probably like to, can't actually administer or control everything within England and Scotland. So he has to appoint some local rulers. He says, okay, your job then is to administer justice in your little area, right, in your little province. So the whole premise of that role is to punish evil and to uphold good. Right? That is what a ruler does. But right after this law is passed, William Wallace is at a wedding ceremony. And they're celebrating, they're laughing, they're dancing, they're drinking together. And the local English ruler, who's in charge of William Wallace's little province, rides up on his horse with his military encampment behind him. He stops the festivities, and he says, I'm claiming my right, eus prima noctis right of the first night, and I will take this Scottish bride, and she will be mine on her wedding night. And everyone can just stand there helplessly, including William Wallace. And the bride sadly kisses her husband farewell, and the husband the whole time is being restrained. He's like, no, you can't take her, because he knows it's wrong. And the ruler's response is just smirk. and say, no, you know what, I can take her, because it's my legal right. Man, if you're anything like me, when I'm watching this scene, if I'm in a movie theater at home, I just want to jump through the screen and, like, punch this guy, right? It's like, man, like, this guy just stinks. Because in that moment, everyone knows that this is evil. But the worst part, there's no hope for justice to be done because the evil ruler is the one who's supposed to carry out justice. So where else do you turn? There is no justice for that bride. And there is no justice for that husband. This local ruler, the very person supposed to deal out good and supposed to deal out justice, is instead dealing out evil. And David, who's the one who writes Psalm 58, he looks around him and sees this exact same kind of injustice when he's writing this psalm. He sees rulers who are supposed to uphold good and instead are bringing about evil. And he starts us in verse 1 of the psalm with an accusation against these rulers. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? 
Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts, you devise wrongs, and your hands deal out violence on earth. And quickly, just a point of clarification. When in verse 1, David says gods, and he refers to gods, he's not actually referencing spiritual gods in the way that we would think of gods now. He's specifically referencing these evil human rulers. So the way you could read verse 1 is, do you indeed decree what is right, you rulers? And if you don't know much about who David is in the Bible, he's one of the greatest kings of Israel, right? And Israel is God's people. And just a few of his accomplishments. So first of all, he united the kingdom of Israel under his rule. And if you don't know much about the Old Testament, which details the story of God's people, there's not very much time in there where they're actually united together. But underneath David's rule, they are, right? So that's accomplishment number one. Number two, God actually promises that one of David's offspring would be a king even greater than him, whose dominion would last forever. And that king actually ends up to be Jesus Christ, our Messiah. So God, through a blood offspring of David, shows him favor and saying, hey, like, it's through your bloodline. I'm going to show favor on you. It's through your bloodline that all of humanity will be saved. So that's accomplishment number two. And number three, David is called a man after God's own heart. And David certainly made mistakes. If, if you were with us maybe a few weeks ago, we actually just went through a psalm that details one of David's very bad, very public mistakes, one of the lowest points of his life. And we want to acknowledge that David was a sinner. He needed grace just as much as all of, we, all of us do. But his legacy, it's actually fair to say, based off what the Bible tells us, that his legacy is one of devotion to God and that he is a righteous ruler. And we're not exactly sure which event or which people group inspired David to write Psalm 58, but what we do know is this, that David, who's this righteous ruler who tries to utilize his power to uphold good and devotion to God, is witnessing other evil, hypocritical rulers who are abusing their power instead. They are claiming to be on the side of justice, to be on the side of good, and yet they are evil. So in high school, I played tennis, right? So in tennis, you can either play singles or doubles. And me personally, I'm a singles player, right? I love singles. And there's a couple reasons why. The first one, if, you, if you've seen a tennis match, a lot of times you'll see someone will maybe serve the ball, the other guy will return it, and then they'll kind of rush up to the net and then put it away at the net. I, I'm horrible at that, okay? Like, I'm so, so bad up at the net. And in doubles, half the time you're playing a point, you have to be up at the net. So I'm like, man, well, I just like to stay back on the baseline and just hit it back and forth. So I really like singles for that reason. And the second reason is, in singles, you don't have to deal with a teammate, right? Because I'm pretty competitive. I want to win. And I'm like, if you screw up, then it impacts me. That's not very fair. Well, here's the problem, right? In high school, there was only three single slots open, and there was like the top three best players. And spoiler alert, I was not one of the top three best players, right? So I had to be stuck freshman through senior year playing doubles tennis. Still fun, but not ideal. But thankfully, my senior year, one of my really close friends, his name is Jake, him and I, we were actually doubles partners. And it was perfect because he was good at the net where I wasn't good at the net. I was right-handed, he was left-handed, so we can both hit our forehands down like the sides of the court. And we worked well because we knew each other, we could communicate well. But Jake had one fatal flaw, and he just really could not manage his anger on the court very well, right? So if you kind of know a guy like that, 
They'll kind of make a mistake, get really mad at themselves, and then just totally fall off a cliff. That was Jake. So there's a couple of key matches where we would be playing, and Jake would be serving, so I would be up at the net. And keep in mind, I have no control over this point, right? I, I have no control. If he just misses his serves, it's not on me. But Jake hits his first serve, goes into the net, then he gets a second serve. And then he hits a second serve and he misses that one. And what that means is that point goes to the enemies. It goes to the enemy team. I'm like, dude, all you had to do was just dink it over and just get it in. At least then we have a chance. And I'm like, okay, you know what? It's one point. That's fine. No big deal. I'm like, hey, come on, man. Let's just lock in. Jake's not listening to me. He goes to the service line on the other side, furious. Starts bouncing the ball, right? Serves it. Boom, way out. Takes out another ball. Serves it. Way out. And at this point, I'm looking over him. I'm like, hey, man, like, come on, like, we gotta cut it out. <laughs> we gotta get the service in, okay? This is a really important match for our team. Jake's not listening. Goes to the service line again. Boom, out, boom, out. And then before I know it, he has blown the entire service game. And we lose the match because of that. So at this point, you know, I'm competitive. I wanna win. And I turn to him and I kind of explode. I'm like, Jake, what was that? You double faulted four times in a row. And then he has the audacity to tell me that that's my fault. Like, wait a minute here. So I'm angry, right? And I'm in the right. I am righteously angry about this, okay? So I had no control over those points. We shouldn't have lost that. And I know that's a silly example, but this is a very similar way that David feels in this psalm. He's seeing all these evil, hypocritical rulers, right? Just as Jake was supposed to be on my side and is giving points to the enemies. These evil rulers, they're supposed to be on God's side, on the side of good and administering justice, and instead, they're God's enemies, and they're administering evil. So in verse 1, do you indeed decree what's right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts, you devise wrongs, and your hands deal out violence on earth, you hypocrites. And David is angry, and he's rightfully angry. And after this accusation that David levies against these rulers, saying they're dealing out violence instead of justice, he moves on to describe what's going on under the surface. And he exposes their hypocrisy and their evil. So in verse 3, David writes, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. So David is describing these hypocritical, unrighteous rulers like someone who's estranged from birth. So when David was writing Psalm 58, if you wanted to be right with God, and if you wanted to have a relationship with God, then you had to be part of God's people. So that was the nation of Israel. And there's two ways you can do that. The first way is you can be born into the nation of Israel, right? And then the second way is you, as a foreigner, could come in and join the nation of Israel and then submit to God's laws, right? So those are your two options. However, if you're estranged from the people of God, if you are cast out from the nation of Israel, that's actually the exact same as being cast out from God himself, from his presence, from a relationship with him. So what David is saying here, these rulers, they're not just estranged, they're not just separate from God and God's goodness, they're actually estranged from birth, meaning they were never part of God's people, and they never will be. They're God's enemies, and therefore they're David's enemies. And you have to understand, these are the kinds of people who would come, they would kill, they would pillage, they would rape, and they would destroy God's people. Just like that ruler from Braveheart, abusing that power. 
They're nowhere near anything good. They're estranged and cut off from God. And if that's not enough, David goes even further in the next couple of verses to describe these hypocrites. So in verse 4 we read, they have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like a deaf adder, and the adder is a snake, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. So not only are these evil rulers estranged from birth, cut off from God, his people, and God's goodness, they're like a venomous snake that doesn't listen to its charmer. So if you've never seen a snake charmer before, what they'll do is they'll take a venomous snake, right? And a venomous snake is super dangerous, right? If it bites you, you might die. So it's a very dangerous animal. But they'll take a snake like this, they'll set it up, and they have some kind of instrument that they play, and they'll start to play music, right? And they'll sway back and forth a little bit. And the snake will be entranced and enchanted by the notes and by the rhythm of the music. So then you can actually have a, a large crowd of people who gather around and are in really close proximity to this super dangerous animal because it's enchanted by the charmer, right? By the snake charmer. So since it's tamed, since it's safe, since it listens to the music, then nobody gets harmed. But imagine now, like David says, if that snake is deaf. Well, then you get a snake charmer who comes in with a very dangerous animal, and a large crowd of people gather around. And the snake charmer starts to play music like he normally does, but the snake can't hear the music. So it's not enchanted, and it's not tamed, and all of a sudden it looks around, and there's a lot of people around it. And it gets scared, and it starts to feel threatened, and it attacks. It bites the snake charmer, and then it bites people as they're running away. And those people might die, right? The snake comes unhinged because it's not listening to the music of the person who's supposed to charm it. It's unhinged, it's going around, it's harming everything around it, and that's exactly how David describes these evil, unrighteous hypocrites who are in positions of power around him. Unhinged, like a snake that's just biting and harming everything in its path. So, so far, we have David, who levies this accusation against these rulers, saying, you're on the side of justice, that's what you claim, but in reality, you're on the side of evil. And then he says, you're also cut off from God, estranged from birth, from his goodness and from his people, and from relationship with him. And more than that, you're like an unhinged snake that is harming everything around it. And the whole point David's making is these rulers, they are hypocrites. They're abusing their power. They're inflicting death and suffering upon those who they're supposed to bring justice to. And why doesn't anyone do something about this? And in the heat of that rage and that emotion, David comes unhinged himself in verses 6 through 9. He, he lets us know exactly what he wants to happen to these evil men. So in verse 6, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths, Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Whoa. So, you know that moment when one of your friends or maybe your spouse or your kid comes up to you? and they have like a song, and they're really excited about this song. They're like, okay, you gotta hear this. This is like the best song ever. You kind of get excited. Okay, you know, that's a bold claim. So sure, I'll listen to it. And they kind of pass you the other earphone. You stick it in, you start to listen to it. 
oh, this is not very good. <laughs> and you don't want to say anything because you feel bad. I actually had a moment when I was preparing this sermon and reading this psalm. I was like, you know, this is going to be a psalm. It's going to be great. It's authored by God, who is the greatest author of all time. And we're going to leave so encouraged. And oh, wow, that, God, what were you thinking there? <laughs> Whew, what's going on here? And we have that reaction because David's imagery is so shocking right? Breaking their teeth, making them like a stillborn child. The language could not be any more clear. David wants these rulers, these hypocrites, to die, and he wants God to be the one who kills them, right? This is the pouring out of the rage that we see in the first verses of the Psalms. What David is saying is just as they dealt out violence against your people, God, do all violence against them. Just as they've broken innocent bones, break their bones, just as they've killed innocent children, let them be like a stillborn. And this language, it's so shocking to us, but to David, who saw these atrocities take place, he knows that's exactly what these evil hypocrites deserve. So I remember exactly where I was when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. It was February 24th of last year. I'm sure many of you remember that date as well. I actually had a corporate job at the time, and we were traveling to California for a business trip. And the whole reason why we went to California was to celebrate the launch of this product, or sorry, this project, rather. And we had been working on this project for years, and it finally launched, finally launched company-wide. So spirits were high, glasses were clinking, food was being eaten, and I'll be honest, like we were pretty noisy <laughs> because we had a lot of loud talkers in our group. But the whole point is it was a joyous affair. Right? And in the middle of all these festivities, I look across the table from me, and then one of my people on my team was just looking down on his phone, and he was just silent. And I was like, hey, man, like, everything okay? Like, what's going on? And he kind of pauses, and he looks up, and he said, well, Russia just invaded Ukraine. And if you remember, at that time, there were some rumors circulating that that could possibly happen, but nothing was confirmed yet, and that just confirmed the worst of everybody's fears. And then the person to my left kind of half overheard what he just said, and she goes, wait, what? Like, what did you just say? He goes, yeah, Russia just invaded Ukraine. And what, went, what started as this joyous, kind of noisy affair, you could just feel the silence that went from left to right as the news spread across the table. But then after a few moments, people started to chat a little bit, and we said, well, Hopefully no civilians get harmed, and hopefully it's just a short military scuffle. It'll just get resolved quickly. Little did we know, though, that two weeks later, Vladimir Putin would bomb a maternity and children's hospital. And you probably remember that famous picture with all the headlines of that pregnant woman who's getting carried out on a stretcher, bloodied. And it turns out that that woman and her baby didn't make it. And remember what Putin actually said to his people about why they were doing this in the first place, why they invaded Ukraine? He said, we're going to purge this land from the Nazis. Nobody likes Nazis. We're going to purge the land of evil, and we're going to reclaim the motherland. We're the good guys. My question to Putin is, what in the world does a children's hospital, does a maternity ward have to do with purging Nazis? And when I heard that news, the last thing I was thinking was, well, the United Nations, 
They'll make a declaration. They'll negotiate with Russia peacefully, and we'll solve things diplomatically. I'm like, no, go get that. You know, fill in the blank, right? Like, <laughs> this guy needs to get what he deserves, eye for an eye. Because how could a ruler who claims to be on the side of justice and good and purging evil do that? Something that's so horrible. And friends, just imagine for a moment how satisfying it will be for mothers who lost children and for children who lost mothers when Putin finally gets what he deserves for that atrocity. And friends, David understands this. David understands the satisfaction of seeing justice done against evil. He sees how good God's justice really is. And that's exactly why he tells us in verse 10, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. So remember back to that scene in Braveheart that we talked about earlier, right? So you have that husband, then his wife gets kidnapped. And that whole time you were thinking, man, this is so unsatisfying because you know it's evil and there's no hope for justice. Well, thankfully, 30 minutes later in the film, William Wallace, right, who's Mel Gibson, William Wallace leads this attack against an English fort, right? And they win fairly easily. And then they have everybody kind of like tied up and subdued. And then this husband walks up to the leader of that fort, the military leader. And it turns out it's the same ruler that took his wife just 30 minutes prior in the film. And that husband walks up and he takes off his helmet and immediately you can see on that evil ruler's face just a look of terror because he instantly recognizes who this man is. He goes, it was my legal right. And the husband, cold-blooded, just says, fine. Then I claim my right as a husband and he stabs him. Right? <laughs> and then blood starts spurting everywhere. And <laughs> but here's the point, friends, is that as he's literally covering himself in the blood of his enemy, right, there is so much satisfaction and victory in that scene because justice has finally been served, right? Hypocrisy has been exposed, evil has been paid back. In that scene, we are rejoicing with William Wallace and with that husband as he bathes himself in the blood of his enemy. But of course, Braveheart doesn't end there, right? William Wallace goes on. He conquers more and more English territory for Scotland, right? More and more freedom starts to spread throughout the land. Unfortunately, though, William Wallace is betrayed, and then he's caught and captured, and then publicly executed. Right? That famous scene, freedom, and he dies. Well, his legacy inspired his fellow Scots to continue to fight. And then several decades later, the movie ends with that final credit and it says, in 1313, the Scottish peoples fought against the tyranny of England and won their freedom. And then it ends with that awesome shot of Mel Gibson's kind of broadsword swinging in the wind. And it's like, man, what a great film. How satisfying. Here's my question. There's one problem with Braveheart. It's not its historical inaccuracy. It's not its violence. It's the fact that William Wallace failed to eradicate all the evil in Scotland. Because as much as he did, did he really right every wrong? Like, no. We know that in Scotland today, there's still injustice. There's still evil. There are still hypocritical rulers who are in power. And we also know, friends, that it's the same everywhere else. 
So where can we turn to see justice done? And where can we turn to see every wrong made right? I think our tendency is to turn to our great rulers, our great human leaders, men like William Wallace. And as much progress as those people can make, and as much good and justice as they can administer, and as much as we should celebrate those people, no one has ever been up to the task of righting every wrong, of solving the problem of injustice. I mean, did Martin Luther King Jr., again, as much as he did accomplish, but did he end all racism with his efforts for civil rights? Or did Harry Truman end all war after dropping the second atomic bomb that ended World War II? And if we're honest, those are some of the better examples we even have. So many other leaders are still corrupt, they're still greedy, and they still only seek to serve themselves. Don't you see, friends, injustice and evil still has such a strong presence in the world today, despite the best efforts of our greatest leaders. And what's more, I bet some of you understand that feeling of injustice on a lot more of a personal level. Some of you were a victim of abuse at some point in your past. And some of your children were taken away from you in your divorce hearing. Some of you were let go from a job you just gave everything to. You never got a good reason for it. And some of you have been falsely accused of something that you didn't even do. Some of you got cheated on or cheated out of money. And some of you know someone else who you love and care for who experiences that kind of injustice and you're just powerless to help them. You know, the thing that really grinds my gears is when I see stories in the news of church leaders who are dealing out this kind of evil, right? Just as one of many, many examples. The New York Times reports, in the past several decades, over 1,900 minors, 1,900 minors were abused by 450 separate clergymen in the Catholic Church. And that's just in the state of Illinois. I mean, how sick, how sick is that? How sick. In David's psalm, he's talking about rulers that are taking people's lives, and that's bad. But to me, this goes one step further because it plays with people's eternities. Right? These men are hypocrites. Where they should be using their power to represent God, they instead inflict evil and create victims. And those victims, or the families of those victims, or even people like us who just see a news story like that, how many people do you think turned away from God as a result. How many people have those evil church leaders led astray? To me, there's no greater sin that you can commit. And sadly, I know some of those people, and some of you do too. And the worst part about that is so many of these corrupt church leaders just get off scot-free. They're never caught. Some of them are. Not all of them. They get to go continue to minister for God, create more victims, perpetuate more evil, and nobody's the wiser. And for you, maybe your abuser, your ex-spouse, former boss, your scammer or robber, or that person who brought about injustice on someone else that you love, 
maybe they get to live their lives as if they never did anything wrong. And friends, we serve a God who actually understands that. And it's not just because his heart breaks for you, because I want to make that clear. God understands that because his heart breaks that you have to suffer that injustice. Just as your heart would break for your child if they have to suffer that injustice, so God's heart breaks for you. But it goes even beyond that because Jesus himself is the ultimate victim of the greatest injustice ever done because he was falsely accused, tried, convicted, and publicly executed for sins that he never did. Those are my sins. Those are your sins. He completely, unfairly took the blame and the punishment for the evils and the wrongs of the whole world. So we serve this God, and he knows what it's like to be that victim of injustice, even more so than we know. And we serve a God who feels that same anger against the evil of the world because he suffered all of the evil in the world. So my question is, why do we still suffer? Why does injustice still have a foothold today? Why is there still evil? And why are there hypocritical rulers who still make victims? What is God's answer to all of the injustice in the world? Because friends, if God does not have an answer to injustice, then Vladimir Putin bombed the maternity ward and he got away with it. End of story. God doesn't have an answer to injustice. And if you were abused, I am so, so sorry. That is unimaginably difficult. But there's just nothing that can be done. You were cheated on? Man, that is so tough. But it just is what it is. Stolen from, falsely accused, you were fired for no reason, you lost custody of your own children. I am so sorry. But if God has no answer to injustice, then that's just the way things are. We know that's not how things are supposed to be. We all feel the need for a righteous ruler, not someone who's hypocritical, not someone who's evil, but who is good and faithful and true to hold evil accountable. We know it can't be any normal human leader. We know that those promises fail time and time again to right every wrong. So we need a great leader. We need someone faithful. We need someone true. We need someone to make war on all evil. We need someone to judge, and to judge not just one nation, but all of the nations. We need a greater ruler who everyone is held accountable to, even rulers. We need a ruler of those rulers. We need a king of kings and a lord of lords. So friends, what is God's answer to injustice? And there is good news Because God does have an answer. And his name is Jesus. The king of kings, the rulers of rulers, and the very foundation and definition of justice. We can turn to Jesus for this hope. The hope that all evil will be held responsible. The hope that every wrong will be made right. We can hold fast to that hope because the Bible tells us it's exactly what's going to happen. In Revelation 19, we read about this final judgment that Jesus carries out against all evil, against every wrong ever done. In verse 11, it reads, Then I saw heaven opened. 
And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't you see? Jesus is the ruler who knows all of the evils committed on earth, not just abstractly or from a distance, but personally. And not just because mankind committed those atrocities, but because he experienced those atrocities. And not just because he died to be defeated by unrighteousness, but because he died to defeat unrighteousness and therefore to make us righteous. And Jesus will be that ultimate righteous judge where every other human effort will fail. Jesus will right every wrong once and for all. And after that, after that day, we have our final promise and hope in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And friends, where human promises of justice totally fail, Jesus' promise of justice is trustworthy it's true. God's justice is good. You can bet your life on it. Because it's only through faith in Jesus that you can experience this eternity without any evil, without any injustice, the eternity that all of us long for. And it's on that day when every wrong is made right, every evil has been judged and accounted for, and Jesus wipes every tear from our eyes. That with David, as our psalm concludes, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous, and surely there is a God who judges on earth. How good is that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that you're a great high priest that empathizes with our sufferings someone who has been tempted and tried in every way. And God, we thank you that you will not leave these evils unanswered, 
We thank you for the promise and the hope that we have in Jesus and in the goodness of his justice that we are promised in your word. We look forward to that day when you will wipe every tear from our eyes and we can live in eternity with you. We pray all this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.